Hey there, it's Dr. Nazanin Mo'oli, and I want to chat with you about a key ingredient for a fabulous date night, feeling sexy. And come on, let's be real. What you wear plays a big part in how you rock that confidence. That's why I'm thrilled to introduce you to Quince. Quince brings you premium European linen dresses, blouses, and shorts starting at just $30, along with washable silk tops, 40-carat gold jewelry, and more. And guess what? All of their goodies are priced 50 to 80% lower than similar brands. By teaming up directly with top factories, Quince skipped the middleman and hands us the saving. Plus, they stick to factories with safe, ethical practices and top-notch fabrics and finishes. How awesome is that? Picking from Quince's website was tough because they have a ton of fabulous choices. I ended up going for their 100% washable silk sleep dress in champagne. And let me tell you, my husband was floored. He's convinced whoever rocks this is in for a blast. I'm going to record some content on that dress so you can see how fabulous is that dress. Elevate your date night style with Quince. Pop over to quince.com slash sexology for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's quince.com slash sexology to get free shipping and 365-day returns. quince.com slash sexology. Welcome to Sexology, a podcast that untangles the science of sex and pleasure. And now, with this week's episode, your host, clinical psychologist, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Sexology Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nazanin Moali. I am so grateful that you tune in today. We're going to talk about how to incorporate play in your sex life. And we're going to talk about BDSM and kinky adventures and play and bondage. But before we dive into the conversation, I wanted to ask you guys for a favor. So if you have a moment, please, please uh, write us an honest review in iTunes or Stitchers. It gives us opportunity to rank higher on iTunes and to reach a broader audience. And I would really appreciate it. As I shared with you that today we're going to talk about play and kink and bondage with one of the very well-known people in the field of sex education and one of the writers. I, I personally attended her uh, workshop and read about her work. And I think she's a fantastic person to give us some tips on how we can kind of incorporate fun in our sex lives. Because at times I, I mentioned during the interview as well, that I get to work with clients and couples and they're telling me they're bored. They've been doing the same things for years and years and decades. And at times they find themselves feeling very disconnected during the sex. And it's helpful to kind of uh, spice things up in a way that sets you for success, but also kind of changes the routine that you have that you might feel kind of stuck in. Our guest today is Midori. She's a renowned sex educator and writer on sexuality. She's an artistic visionary who has touched lives across the globe 
with her expertise in sexuality, personal fulfillment, and kink adventures. Using her head-heart-hand methodology, she facilitates tackling challenging topics and creating a space where people are allowed individual self-explorations. She has multiple workshops and books and different things that she's been hosting and she has the calendar. So I leave a link to her website where you can find all of those information about her upcoming classes and events. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Midori. Welcome back to another episode of Sexology Podcast. I am so excited and thrilled to have Midori in our show. She's a sex educator, as I mentioned. She's a celebrity when it comes to alternative pleasure and the king community. And I'm so excited about our conversation today. Midori, welcome to our show. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. And hi out there, everyone. <laughs> you know, I was I was doing a little bit of research in your background, obviously, as a sex educator. I, I shared with you in the email that I, I came to your session and ASAC, which was great. But I, I realized you have such a vast knowledge and experience when it comes to sex education. So I'm kind of curious to see how did you start it in the field? Well, I actually started in the early 90s as, well, I I don't know if you saw my TEDx talk, but I do talk about oh, no, how I, I came to my- Oh, no, I haven't seen that. Oh, yeah. I actually have a TEDx talk, and um, I'll send you the link on that. I yes. talk about how I came to my, my artwork, but it's also the same, my artwork as well as my teaching career has the same origin point. So when I ended up in San Francisco in the early 90s as a, a young, young human being, uh, fresh into my adulthood, it was also a time when San Francisco was under the dark cloud of death of the pandemic. HIV and death from AIDS and AIDS-related illnesses was such a common thing, an entire generation of people wiped out an entire city under the dark shadow of of death, loneliness, rejection, and this this wasn't just about a an illness, but rather it was about um, rejection and invalidation, invisibility of being castigated as as. I mean, the government was even, uh, there were elements of the government talking about rounding up people into, yeah, it was, it was a terrible time. And I'm a clueless, yeah, a newly minted adult. And <laughs> I, I'm coming into all of this and having this, this sense that something is not right. Something is not okay. I am, I should be in a place where I am enjoying my sexual expression and exploring the the edges of my desire and finding out what I want. And yet everything about sex and relationship was death. In the end, it was all about death, disease, shame, stigma. And I was I was diving into to exploring the, the San Francisco sex life. So what's a girl to do? And I ended up quite by great fortune circumstance and being at the right, uh, the wrong place at the right time and all of that <laughs> and ended up befriending, being befriended by amazing people who believed that human sexuality is 
part of the fullness of the human condition, that we all deserve the fullness and right information so that we can make the best individual decisions for ourselves. Later on, this particular philosophy would be given a name called the sex positive movement. But as most movements in the moment of its its inception and in its early times don't have a name. We just were doing things that seemed decent. And I ended up as part of San Francisco Sex Information. I also ended up with with a loosely knit people, group people who would end up going to uh, we would organize and get go to sex clubs and do oh, safer fun. sex li- live demo. Oh, now this is actually the vacuum, the gap that public health could not do. Their hands were tied. Their hands were tied by by funding and municipal laws. They had to meekly stand behind tables and hand out condoms. Mm-hmm. And it was the beginning of abstinence education, which we know the harm that's actually done. Right. And they, as much as they actually wanted to talk about how to engage in sex smarter and sexier, they couldn't. But we could because we were just a bunch of bunch of people trying to do things that seemed right. <laughs> that is awesome. So I ended up getting going through the SARS training. I've gone through a proper SARS training in the early 90s and became a grassroots, grassroots safer sex and sexuality resource person. Now, up until then, I actually had no idea that I was I was I was good at public speaking. I had no idea. I had no opportunity to practice that. I, you know, I just went to school and did my thing. I had no idea that I was actually good at speaking publicly. So in the local um, sexual subcultures, there were various places where we did essentially peer-to-peer skill and knowledge sharing. I still, you know, I, I got asked to do a couple of things, you know, nothing fancy, just peer-to-peer skill, skill and knowledge sharing and turned out. I was pretty good at it, and I would get asked to do more of it and more of it. In the meantime, I'm just going, you know, working at, like, an administrative boring job, and I'm getting more and more. Yeah, I mean, it's a totally boring day job, playing, paying the rent. I, look, I did not come to this with this ideal of, I am going to be a sex educator. No, I was just having fun, and it seemed like a decent thing to do. I love that. What a beautiful story of like, you know, the shift that you made from something that you were doing to pay rent and to transitioning to making a career after like a, like with something that you feel passionate about and such a great service. It is, it is an unusual path. And I often get asked about how do I become a sex educator? I'm like, well, don't do what I did. <laughs> I mean, it turned out really well. So I, I, I'm not sure if, if it's a good advice. <laughs> well, I, I do advise people that, that they may want to rethink their idea of what success means because I, I am paid in satisfaction. And of course, I live in San Francisco. So, you know, cost of living is like through the roof. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. No, at least you're doing something. They're just I, I genuinely feel like it's very helpful, no, like adding knowledge to people. And I think it's such a unique and it seems like you're having fun while you're doing it, which is the most important thing. Yes. And that one of the things I think that, that makes what I offer unique or a few of the things is that I, I, am, I am an explorer into, into our pleasures. And I'm 
approaching this from a place of a human being who's invested in in my wholeness and my sexual being. And as such, I I share from a place of my mistakes, my adventures. I, I'm not coming from a place of of reciting reciting academic knowledge, though though I have a academic background in psych, but that really didn't help so much because it was the focus on psych I found so often was around pathology and abnormal psych. And and I went to Berkeley where the emphasis was abnormal psych and neurobiological psych really didn't help me out so much in terms of how functional, quote, ordinary citizens and their strategies around sex, pleasure and identity. Right. And you were talking about SARS. And I think the time I went to SARS, which was like, I think, definitely later <laughs> than the time mm-hmm. you're talking about, I think. But that was the that was a event. That was a training. I got introduced to rope bondage. And mm-hmm. obviously, I've seen it in the movies. I've seen it in different places. I've seen the art forms. But that was the first time I was kind of like looking at it and kind of like contemplating. And I know that's one of your areas of expertise like you know talking about like teaching pleasure and i also you do the bondage and it's i know it's a form of art the kind that you do mm, is it not shibari you now know, i i <laughs> i'd be careful about making that that calling it a form of art why not so i i'm i'm known for i'm known for quite a few things i guess i wrote i'm known for teaching about rope bondage and i'm i wrote the first english language instruction book on shibari uh, i teach a lot of classes on that now, what I'm actually teaching is creative engagement. And rope just happens to be one of the mediums by which I, I open the door for people to engage in creative pleasure expression. The other aspect that I'm known for is Fort FM, my, my women's dominance intensive. That is actually around being able to being able to put words and names and, and understand what one's desires are instead of accepting an externally placed externally placed expectation of how we are to ple- to experience pleasure. I think that's fascinating. And as for the uh, the rope bondage as art, because my other career is as an artist, I, I'm going to uh, I'm going to put a little cautionary flag out there that. Just because something is artful or attractive does not necessarily make it art or intended to be art in the intention of the creator. The person who's, by creator, I mean the person who's mm-hmm. making that experience or installation or artwork, right, or that thing. When I'm playing with rope bondage with a lover, I'm not making art. That is way too pretentious. And it also takes us, uh, because of the way that, that, in especially in Western society, we tend to think of art as something that exists separately from the now, mm-hmm. right? I think it gives it a pretension. Mm-hmm. It also pretentiousness is also a great way for people to mask their repression, suppression in the form of justification. And I like that. Yeah, I like that reframing of kind of like talking about it as a form of like creative engagement versus the art. And I can see that if uh, to me as someone who's who's not who doesn't know how to do a robe or doesn't have the knowledge, the things that I see and the expression I see seems very artful, as you mentioned. 
Ah, see, you may be seeing photos. <laughs> yes, right? yes. And movies. Right. And that's like, you know, that that's that's watching that's watching a movie a movie movie a love story a movie that's a love story is an interpretation of the experience of love it's not love right so so when we look at a movie and we think that our relationship and our sex life is supposed to be like that it's not that is we all know that we yeah you know, we look at Fast and Furious and we don't think we're going to drive like that. At least I shouldn't drive like that. I, you know, I'm a middle-aged Asian woman with a Prius. I should not drive like that. Okay? I'm not going to learn how to drive by watching Fast and Furious. Will I enjoy it? Oh, hell yeah. You know? Right. But yeah, I actually come to a full stop at a stop sign, as annoying as it may be to the person behind me. <laughs> um, so likewise, if you're looking at a photo of rope bondage, right? It's a photo. Its purpose is to evoke an, a feeling in you. The creation of the photo was not to experience pleasure in the moment, usually. In the moment a camera comes out, there's the gaze of the other, right? And then the, the experience is now shifted to the unseen other, the viewer down the road. And anyway, it was a photo shoot. You got makeup artists, hair artists, you got lighting, you got, you know, you've got all of these things going on and you've got people who are professional or amateur know to do, whether it's the professional face or the selfie face, to pose for the camera. So is it authentic in the moment? Maybe not, maybe, I don't know, but it certainly is for, it is designed to create an experience in you as the, the viewer when people are actually playing with rope bondage in a place of abandon and not worrying about the judgment or gaze of the other or the presence of a camera or will I get a good angle, it's a lot messier. It's a lot messier. It's a lot freer. It's less concerned with the perfection of the moment or the perception and judgment down the road. You know, it's like fuck hair, mm -hmm. you know? <laughs> When you actually look at fuck hair right. as a snapshot, it's not attractive. It's got mushed <laughs> in the back. And, you know, it's like, you know, you got drool over here. <laughs> you know, it's matted on that side with a little bit of lube in it. You know, right. it's not pretty. But when there's like sex in the movies, whether it's porn or, or a mainstream art house, you know, their fuck hair is like perfect. Mm -hmm. You know, this is, this is just like amazing. Right. And somehow the the lipstick is artfully smeared. And I don't know how they managed to keep their eyeshadow on. <laughs> and, you know, nobody nobody like queefs or, you know, farts in the middle of it. Right. Right. And so interesting. Yes. Yes. And now you're talking about it. It makes me reflect on my experience of like what I perceive when it comes to bondage, because it hasn't been something I explored myself and my introduction to it was i remember like last like you know seven eight years ago i went to japan it was so interesting mm -hmm. and i was looking at uh, it was different art galleries and one of the art galleries they had the photography of rope bondage and this kind of perfect images and it was just so artful and i felt kind of like aroused and curious and it was very interesting but you're right i can imagine if you are in the moment kind of engage in the act in the same way and you, like, you know, really tuning it in the, in the what's going on in the scene, it's definitely can be different. Oh, yeah. And I, I'm glad you got to see a photo exhibit because those things, those things should move you. I, I wonder if you saw Araki's work, Nobuyoshi Araki. 
He's a famous and controversial Japanese photographer who often documents sexual situations as well as the red light district in Japan. Brilliant photographer. I got to actually do a major art installation commissioned as an entry piece for the Araki exhibition at the Museum of Sex in New York. Oh, interesting. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. And was that around like bondage? What was what was your installation about? Ah, yes. It's my installation involved rope that is used for bondage. However, the installation is actually a, a 25 feet long hallway, 30 feet long hallway that is like this tunnel, this passage made of interwoven ropes, 8,000 feet of rope to be precise. Oh, wow. Oh my God, yeah. do you have an image? <laughs> and now I'm kind of curious. I want to see the pictures. <laughs> oh, yeah, I can I can totally send it to you. It's at it's up at the Museum of Sex uh, through the end of August. Perfect. And uh, yeah. So that's about creating a liminal space of transition through the, the physical moving through a space, but there's also change in the scent and texture and the lighting. So it becomes an all senses experience as a way to prepare you to enter the house of Araki or the photo photo exhibit, the two-story vast um, retrospective of Araki's work. So it was, it was a, a big honor to be asked to install that. Right, right. And it seems like this is something that you use it as an artistic expression, but it's not necessarily, doesn't need to be art for people who are practicing it day to day. So it seemed like you're, you made that distinction that like, you know, it can right. be artfully, like artists doing the, that as an art form, but it's not necessarily an art when people are doing when it. You're, when, when you're playing, just play. <laughs> you know, don't worry if it's art or not. The moment you start to worry about it, you know, it's, it's like you start to lose that connection, right? Right. So just play. Don't worry about it. When, you know, kids have a box of crayons and they're drawing, they're not worrying if they're making the next masterpiece. They're just drawing because they're having a good time with their friend. Right. And I love that because at times I feel when it comes to sex and people want to kind of explore alternative things in sexuality, they get kind of hooked in the props. And am I doing it right? Do I look right? This is the right thing. And versus kind of focusing on how does it feel like? What do, what do I enjoy doing? Which which I like that you're saying that the focus needs to be more on kind of like here and then like pleasure and how does it feel versus on how does it look? Yes. And which brings us right back to my definition of BDSM, which we talked about at ASEC. My definition of BDSM is not the breaking down of the acronym. But rather, BDSM is childhood joyous play with adult sexual privilege and cool toys. Love that. It's so different than how society kind of perceive like BDSM most people. And, and I know you talk a little bit about the stigma. So tell me a little bit about oh, what are some of the stigma that you kind of hear people associate with BDSM that kind of like encourage you to introduce and kind of like create awareness around this different look, different way of looking at this practices. Okay, so let's talk stigma and let's talk truth. Stigma is that people who people who do kink and BDSM are a, a small minority. That's the stigma and the falsehood. Reality is a lot more people do it. They just don't call it that. Another stigma 
is that there must be childhood damage and uh, some early trauma that you're replaying. Well, you know, we have all aspects of life to replay trauma and all the ways in which our childhood as, and culture has fucked us up. We may have chosen the wrong job. We, we, drive, we drive like a crappy, aggressive asshole. We might, we might engage in uh, food or alcohol or bad handwriting or, you know, angry, passive-aggressive note leaving to people who park poorly. I, I will own, own up to that one. <laughs> I'll totally own up to that one. You park like an asshole. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, in every aspect of our lives, we can ex express all the ways in which we are screwed up. So, okay, then sure, there are some people that are engaging in plain old missionary vanilla sex for all the wrong reasons. Mm -hmm. that can go just as much of an assumption as kink sex. Now, so the, the assumption is that there must be something screwed up with you. The reality, I think, is that people who are playing joyously with kink actually didn't lose touch with their inner child. And I think that's a cool thing because I think kink is essentially cops and robbers with fucking. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I like that. And it's an expression of play. It is expression of, of the games that children play and without getting stymied by adult self-imposed adult limitation. Other stigma that, that people have is that, oh, it's about pain. Well, when we talk about sadomasochism, most people think, oh, it's that you want to cause pain in somebody else or you want to receive pain. Okay, so let's unpack that. All right, so first it's not about pain. It's more about intense sensation mm -hmm. and experiencing something a little more intense than your default. It's kind of like spicy food, mm -hmm. right? So I like spicy food a lot. My default level of spicy is significantly hotter than how my Brazilian friends like it. It's really weird, and especially in northern Brazil, it's like black pepper is spicy. I don't get oh. it. <laughs> then, you know, if I'm hanging out with my, my Szechuanese friends, I am a total wimp compared to them, right? It's all relative. Mm -hmm. And do I want the same spiciness every day? No, I don't. So it's essentially variance of sense experience. And as primates, as mammals, we need variance in sense experience to, to keep the fullness of living and environmental enrichment, as the zoologists and biologists would say. Now, let's go back to the word pain. And, and now, now that we have discussed that sadomasochism is actually just having something a little more intensely than you usually do, right? So, it's, so sadomasochism is more about once in a while, do you want to be held down just a little more tightly than usual? You know, it's mm -hmm. like that. Now, back to the issue around pain, though. What I find interesting, especially in, the, in modern United States, modern North America, we automatically pathologize discomfort. Mm -hmm. And I think that's also true in the mental health thinking mm -hmm. and attitudes, that if we experience an emotional or physical struggle, then we should cure it. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't know. When I go to my gym, that's not what my good trainer says. In order for me to achieve a, a good standard maintenance physical fitness, a little bit of struggle, a little bit of discomfort 
is what keeps my muscles in tone and resilient. If I don't know how to deal with the range of emotional discomfort and even pain that life throws at me, if I don't know how to experience that, how will I have resilience and strength in the face of the slings and arrows of everyday life? I love that. And I love that reframing. And back to the point that you're talking about, the pathologizing, the discomfort, even in mental health, I love the new movement with acceptance and commitment therapy saying that pain is part of life. Suffering, actually suffering is part of life. And it's, it's like creating the life that's meaningful and worth living is the mission of the life, not eliminating the pain. So I love that. Obviously, suffering and trauma that is debilitating, that needs to be addressed. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, there's that we should not ignore the the suffering that is beyond, beyond reason, that is beyond, that is debilitating, that is, is indeed like just, just devastating. I also think every time we stub our toe, or somebody slights us, or if we have a blue day, that we shouldn't pop a pill, we shouldn't ignore it, we shouldn't pathologize it, that maybe take a look at, is this, is this the condition of life? Or do I, am I now feeling I have no agency in this? Or am I experiencing the realness of emotion with agency? And that element of agency, here's another thing around myth of BDSM, is that one does not have choice over one's desire. In other words, one doesn't have agency over one's, and that it's compulsion. Not true. Now, are there some people who engage in sexual activities that are compulsive, including BDSM activities that are compulsive and harmful? Yes. But that's not all of BDSM. It's like saying food. Mm-hmm. So, again, is it always compulsive? No, it's not. It's and another aspect of this on terms of agency is that, oh, I am bottoming. I am playing. I'm enjoying submission. Therefore, I have surrendered all agency. Bullshit. <laughs> just just no. that is that's a nice fantasy because we live busy freaking lives mm-hmm. and would it be nice once in a while to just hand over somebody else piloting our pleasure hello pilot of my pleasure take take me on this fabulous ride and let me just buckle in and have a ride right that's not surrendering agency that's 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 a temporary redistribution of You're asking somebody to be your cruise director. (laughs) That's so awesome. It can be liberating, as you're you're talking about. Yes. Yeah. It's like, once in a while, don't we deserve a concierge of pleasure? (laughs) What a beautiful reframing. And I love that you're talking about that. It's more common that people think about. Because at times people feel so shameful about this kind of variety of things that they like. And I like that you're talking about how common it is and how it's it can be expression of the play and joy. And it doesn't need to, we don't need to put a label on it. Yep. And another common misperception is when somebody's into kink, that that's the only way they can get off. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, you know, it's focusing on the exotic, right? You know, it's, it's, 
I like to make food analogies because food and sex have a lot of lot of overlap in all the good and all the bad ways. Right. But all right. So if I if I'm hanging out with Julia Child, I wish I, I wish I could have hung out with Julia Child, <laughs> who's capable of making the most sublime of French cooking. But don't you think she also likes a good greasy burger and a nice milkshake? I, I happen to know she used to come to this hole-in-the-wall Vietnamese joint that just served, like, street food. But would people think, oh, Julia Child must have amazing French food for, you know, all the meals, three meals a day. No, it's French, so it's seven meals a day, seven <laughs> days a week. Must be. No, you know what? She, she probably ate Ritz crackers, too. <laughs> That, that is so interesting because I love that you highlighted that because at times I get couples in my private practice that w- one of the partner want to open up the, talking about their kings and the other partner gets this sense of horror that, oh my God, so he's not into this, this, this anymore. That's the only thing gets arousing to him. And I, I like that you're kind of highlighting it. There's a need to be either or the combination of menu of different things. It, it becomes more of an a la carte menu and, and a, a range, it, yeah, a repertoire as, as opposed to a jumping down the rabbit hole. Yeah, there's this idea that, oh yeah, and the other myth is the uh, pot to heroin <laughs> theory of kink. Right. Today spanking, tomorrow hanging from the chandelier <laughs> in a clown outfit while tied to a pig carcass. I don't know, I made that shit up. Um, it's not, <laughs> Beautiful it, it imagery. Sounds like, it sounds like some performance art piece at Torture Garden, London, right. which I'm sure it's been done before, uh, <laughs> as performance art, as performance art. But yeah, there's this idea that there, I have noticed over the years that when, when people first discover kink and that there's, there's this like, yeah, rather active and and not so hidden, actually straight out in the open subculture of people who do interesting things in their sex lives. And what I notice happening is that the first couple of years, like a kid in the candy store, people go, oh my God, I have to do all the things, all the things. And they buy all the things and they buy all the clothes and they go to all the classes and they try all the things and they do, they, they, they do this, that, and the other. Maybe. Yeah, some people do that. Not everyone. Some people do that. And then like, well, that was an adventure. You know, it's, it's kind of like people who get into like a really strict exercise regimen. You know, I know I know friends of mine. I'm, I'm active with AIDS Life Cycle who are like devoted cyclists. And then they get into the cycling and they're doing like 100 miles and 200 miles every weekend. Yeah, just wait a couple of years. <laughs> And they'll still have their bike. They'll go out on rides. They'll like, and they become far more sensible, and it becomes integrated into integrated into their everyday life because they still got to help the kid with the homework. They still got to go visit mother-in-law. Got to go to work. The car needs repair. You know, life life happens. And guess what? You get to have vacations that you're not going to be on a bicycle. Maybe except that rental bike at you know Central Park. Yeah, and, and if not, you go pro. But but how many people ride a bicycle end up at Tour de France? Right. <laughs> oh, my God, you got a bicycle. Next thing you know, you're going to be in Tour de France. No. And I think it's it's such another great point because at times I see 
one of the partners is intrigued as well to try this new fun kinky thing that the other partner is recommending, but exact kind of mentality that if I agree to try this on, what would be the next? And what am I opening the door to as you're talking about it versus saying that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to definitely going to go to the next and next and it's going to be out of control. Yeah. And some of us, like, you know, I tend to be a novelty, you know, adventure seeker. You know, I, I'm more likely to say, yeah, if I look at a menu and there's something I don't know, I will order it. I realize I'm not the majority. And there are some of us who are novelty and, and experience seekers, but even those who are, there's a point in which it's like, yeah, that's more trouble than it's worth it. And whether it's bringing pleasure or not, I think that's like kind of practicing it, trying it, is it my thing or not? And it kind of brings me yeah. to the next point. So if... If like there are listeners that are interested to kind of explore and express their desire for power exchange in bedroom, what are your recommendations to them? What can they do if they want to open that parts of their sexuality? Okay, so I got I got two things. One is what I call the kiss principle, and others what I call the sandwich method. Ooh, do so the kiss principle, <laughs> yes, the kiss principle is keep it simple and sexy, mm-hmm. right? So if you take your your regular good sex. I call it the RGS, your regular good sex, because I I don't want to say that vanilla sex is bad because I would rather have hot vanilla sex than bad, boring kink. Mm-hmm. Right. And and that which is good and lovely about your sex life. Great. Keep it at a blindfold. Mm-hmm. So you added one thing. You're keeping it simple. You're keeping it sexy. You're not give, bringing in 57 different thingies to do and props and things that make you feel lack of confidence and uncertain. No, nope. take your regular good sex. Keep it simple. And what I mean by the sandwich method is you take that new and novel simple thing and you put it right in the middle. We're counting on the recency effect and the primacy effect. The recency effect is that which happened most recently leaves the most impression and colors experience. The primacy effect is that which happened at first is going to set the tone and color the experience. So let's say, you know, you and I have have regular good sex and it starts off with making out and nipple licking and neck licking and a little oral sex and a little fucky fucky and a little orgasm and then chocolate, Mm -hmm. just because I like chocolate after (laughs) sex, I do. Let's say that's our regular good sex. Great. Awesome. Then we throw in, we treat our regular good sex like bread of sandwich. And a good sandwich needs really good bread. Not just because I'm from San Francisco and we're known for our bread. (laughs) But you got to have good bread. Julia Child would agree uh, that you got to have good bread for sandwich. So you got the good bread. Now, bread alone is fine if it's good bread. Okay, little butter, like Mm -hmm. lube, it's good. But then you slice that bread and you put that new thing in the middle. You don't want to introduce a giant sandwich to somebody with 57 different ingredients in it. Mm -hmm. You can't even wrap your mouth around it, much less your mind. So we put the one thing in the middle, say the blindfold. We've never tried blindfold. So we have our making out, nipple, nipple, uh, licky, licky. And I put a blindfold on you. And then I go down on you. And then fucky, fucky, boom take the blindfold off and we have chocolate. And if you like the blindfold, we keep it in our repertoire. Now, if you didn't like the blindfold, we started with a good thing, we ended with a known good thing. So the blindfold, you didn't 
like it so much we can easily shrug it off without pressure, without judgment, without blame. And so it's the sandwich method is a strategy that that I like to introduce as a way to try something new. I like that a lot because I'm thinking, you know, first of all, you're building this kind of story, this kind of a toolbox with your partner than based on the things you like and kind mm-hmm. of like, you know, if you know, like you like the first part and last part, if the, even the middle part is so, so it doesn't necessarily cause that you kind of get disappointed or kind of think it was like, it didn't work out at, at, at all. So, but if you like it, then you can add something else. And then as times goes by, you can evolve your taste and you guys can do things that's novel and interesting and it's just, yes, but still very rewarding and it kind of builds this kind of sense of confidence that like, you know, we're slowly introducing things and feeling good about doing that. Yeah. And if you do actually have those 57 things you want to try, well, that's going to be at least 57 different nights. <laughs> no, I, I like that a lot. Maybe I'll, I'll definitely, I'll give you credit and I'll steal it in my session with my clients because I get couple, they, <laughs> they, they've been doing the same things for 20 years and they're really bored. <laughs> And it's not exciting mm-hmm. for them. And I think it's it's good to know where would be a good place to start, incorporate some novelty. Yeah, and and I would be delighted if you incorporated that into what you share. That would be great. The thing too that I find practical is always try try your best to end on a positive note on especially for long-term couples, that which you know you guys like. So even if an experiment, let's face it, failed because it will <laughs> something or another, sure. I mean, you know, you know, kinky engaging in kinky sex is essentially about being an adventure, and as an adventurer, you have to accept that some of those trails go nowhere. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> some of those adventures just really come to not a good end. But you can mitigate that by making sure that you have closure with something that that is satisfying, which leaves a bad experience, perhaps in the realm of a a shared grimace and a giggle. Right. I love that, Midori. I feel like I wanted to talk to you about so many things, <laughs> but we're toward the end of our time. And I definitely feel I want to do a follow-up, if that's okay with you in the near future. Oh, I would love to. Yeah, I would love to. Because I, I, yeah. I have so many questions and I've been following your work for a while. And it's just definitely an honor to have you on the show. And so I, I bet many of our listeners want to kind of get in touch with you, learn about your workshops. So what are some of the good ways to learn about your workshops and the books and everything that you you kind of put in the field? Well, I have my, my umbrella site, which is fhp-inc.com. I know it's a little clumsy. It stands for Firehorse Productions. I'm also all over Facebook under Planet Midori. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, it's all under Planet Midori. I And I love having conversations with health and mental health professionals because I, I love to be able to, to share the strategies and language of uh, the gloriously everyday adventures. But I also learn so much from you guys in terms of where where the health and and human care and wholeness is headed to. So thank you for having me on. No, 
thank you. And again, I'm excited for our conversations and leave the link in the uh, website to all the, the website and all the links you shared with me. And you, so you guys can, listeners can get a hold of it. And thank you so much. This was so wonderful to talk to you. Thank you. And I'll talk to you soon. Hey there, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Midori. I'm planning to have her in future episodes because because of the wealth of the knowledge she had. I feel like we were just scratching on the surface. And I'm so grateful that she she came on the show and gave us some tips and information about first misconceptions around BDSM and also what to do if you want to have some fun in in the bedroom and outside the bedroom. At the end, I wanted to ask you guys to share with me what are some of the things that you enjoy about this podcast. We are close to our 100th episode and I wanted to do an episode with recording of you guys' voices about the things you like about this podcast. You can share with me that some of the tips that you used and whether it worked and whether it didn't work. And I can feature you on the show and I cannot wait to hear your voices. All right. Have a great week. Thanks for listening to Sexology Podcast. For more great content, visit www.sexologypodcast.com. Please be advised that information presented on this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health provider.